Today, for today's presentation, we have three speakers from the Exposure Management Working Group, which is a research initiative um, from the Short-Term Insurance Com Committee. Um, our three speakers today are Hannes van Rensburg from Dynamo Analytics, um, Carla Fazano from Guy Carpenter, and Bridget Bernon from um, Compass Insurance. Welcome, everybody. Hello everyone, um, so, great, so as um, Nicola said, Nicola, not, not anymore, as Nicola said, so we, um, about a year, or last year we started a working group to look into kind of um, exposure management, the, kind of the state of the market, data, try to get more insight into the SAM parameterization, um, capital that companies hold, etc. Um, and um, we've had a couple of members um, that's, uh, that contributed over the period that's not here, um, that are not presenting today. Um, so we'll, we'll come back to them, they'll, they'll be listed and thanked. But just to quickly uh, sum up what we're just going to touch today, give a bit, bit of background about what we, what we did, what we looked at, talk a bit about geocoding, um, geospatial analysis, um, how, the, how that can be used in kind of different payroll models. Then um, Bridge is going to talk about SAM, a bit about the parameterization and some of the, um, um, yeah, the, the state and, and uh, some comparisons, etc. Then we're going to talk a bit about validation, look at um, understanding the results for your business, etc. So, um, Obviously, exposure management, it's about um, managing the concentration. Um, so concentration risk to a single event, peril, or type of exposure. Um, in general, when people talk about exposure management, it's, it's about actually managing how much exposure do I have in a specific area that can be impacted. Um, so, or actually how much uh, like the total limits insured. So what's the potential, my loss potential from a certain event? Um, main mitigation tool is to know what you're exposed to. I think what's quite interesting is um, when we started out, and I think it is improving, but it's actually quite, was quite disturbing initially to, that companies don't actually know what they're insuring. You know, if there is an event, um, many companies or at, at the time we start looking at you know, lots of the data isn't geocoded. If you think of commercial lines insurance, there'll be you know, underwriters would have looked at a key location but not necessarily have, have even have at, at their, um, on their systems the list of all individual properties insured. Um, so I think the um, Previously, we, we, we had a brief update last year when we talked about the kind of the state of the market, the impact of data quality on your, on your modeling. Um, so, yeah, we're not going to touch on that again, but that presentation is still available if, if anyone's interested. So, as part of the initiative, we obviously also looked at the, 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 the cause or correlation between location and certain catastrophic events. So, if we just, I'm just going to look at recent catastrophe disasters. So, um, in this last month, obviously, we had the New Zealand quake strikes. Uh, it was uh, quite severe. There was also a large earthquake in the South Island. Um, kind of happened sim roughly similar timing or just after the, the kind of biggest New Zealand loss ever. 
Then we had the Italian earthquakes um, just a month or so ago, um, which maybe correlated with some other events, but also similar to quite a disastrous um, Italian rugby campaign recently. Um, we had the UK floods this year. Um, yeah, so quite interesting. Also, first time in 10 years we lost to the English. And then we had the Japanese quake. Um, so what's quite interesting is actually when you plotted the wind percentage over the last 11 um, data points of the Springboks against the natural catastrophe, number of natural catastrophes per year, um, strangely negatively correlated, which is quite interesting because with completely uncorrelated to man-made catastrophes, um, which, you know, would be... But anyway, so just to get back to geospatial analysis. So when we talk about geospatial analysis, it's about um, modeling. So think, you, we think about the, this you know, space or place, surface of the earth, topography, rivers. So, um, yeah, so anything to do with where something's located. Think about the scale, so oh, scale, place, and time. That's what, which, what you're looking at when you think about um, geospatial analysis. Obviously, um, from an insurance perspective, um, if something occurs in a place where there's no exposure, it doesn't really matter. Time of the day is very, obviously uh, quite important when it comes to certain types of losses, such as hail. So, um, yeah, I th when we start looking at some of the, the models and methods used, it's robust, it can, it's very useful. Um, there's lots of tools that can be used um, if you think of catastrophe models or just spatial models in pricing. Um, interesting to see, and we've got a poll about um, on, on how, you know, what companies are actually doing. And the technology and data, I think it's much more accessible now than even two years ago in South Africa. I think for years in, in other insurance markets, so catastrophe-driven markets, they've been geocoding. So where 10 years ago, you know, maybe the London market was in a similar position with regards to data. Um, South Africa is definitely, there's more players, more people offering geocoding solutions. So just by, um, just want to quick, do the quick poll now, if you can just put the first question on, on the screen. Um, so, not that one, that's the last one. No, the other one. That one. Um, so, does your company currently invest in geocoding within the business? So, yeah, one vote says yes. Maybe by show of hands. Um, not the one hand, I mean, if you don't have, haven't downloaded the app. But is that something that many companies are looking, looking at? There we go. Okay, that's better. Four, 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 six, updating. Okay. Okay, interesting. Almost there. So I think it, especially on the commercial side, um, it'd be interesting to kind of see with the profile of voters. But it's definitely a concern, and and if and I think definitely driven by Sam. Um, if you consider the say the factor-based calculation, if you don't know your exposures compared to the scenario-based calculation, it, it's it's. It's multiples of the, cap, the same capital. So it is quite interesting 
And I think, um, yeah, there's it, it, a big drive towards that. Another, another drive is obviously the, the, the broker kind of regulations, the fact that companies have to have their own data, know what they insure. Um, next question, sorry, just the, um, just the uh, next poll question. Um, okay, do you currently apply any geospatial factors in any pricing model in the business? The, the results up again at the end. Thank you. You can take the poll down, thanks. Um, so obviously it's obvious that um, interesting for insurers. Um, so when you think of um, uh, um, understanding your exposure, where, is that, where, where it's at, um, Obviously, one of the largest drivers, natural catastrophe, um, the frequency and severity in certain areas. So a lot of work being done to understand what companies are exposed to, what, what perils you're exposed to. Um, again, as I said but earlier, the, if you don't have insured values in a specific area, it's normally not that interesting. Time is a big, big aspect. Um, and what's interesting, things like infrastructure, um, with, the, with the flooding, um, in around the airport the other day. It was quite catastrophic for me. I was there delayed by five hours of my flight to Cape Town. But the, um, um, I mean, it wasn't, the flooding, it wasn't linked to a river or, or uh, you know, it's not, it's not really historically what we'd consider flood risk, how people would model flood risk. But, it, but it, the, these flash floods and the, and the appearance of them um, and, and the location is very much driven how, the, how, how things are getting built up. That rainwater, you know, it's not really, it's, it's actually being funneled in certain directions. And, and so the whole kind of um, face of flooding, you know, it, it, it's lots of other considerations to think about. So just quickly to touch, so using spatial smoothing and pricing. So, so when, I, when I worked in the UK, a lot of personal lines insurance companies used um, smoothing in, in their pricing and um, what they're kind of doing is they're trying to, they would look at post, postal codes and they would calculate statistics for certain postal codes and then take averages between postal codes to say, okay, well, because we don't, might not have enough credible information in a specific area, but visually you can, you, you know, we can, we can smooth the results. So average the, so to, when to come up with a factor, use the adjacency take an average in my frequency, say claims frequency, use an average of all areas surrounding, surrounding the specific area that I'm considering. Um, what, what you're trying to do, when you make your selections, you're trying to parameterize what's the kind of the, how much smoothing needs to be applied. So get that balance between actually removing the noise and over smoothing. So, so that's the kind of the, I would say, the more the actuarial approach to um, to, to traditional actuarial approach to, to, to using smoothing in or using geo kind of geospatial type analysis in our work. Um, so obviously in a specific area you might already have certain factors such as age and you know, certain demographic factors such as income. 
So what companies would do is they would fit their kind of their GLM models or calculate their multi-factor models without any area-related um, um, factor. You would then plot your residuals to try and see certain clusters and then um, apply the smoothing to the residuals um, and then refit the model with, with that area factor in the model. So then that factor is kind of allows for the residual risk that other factors um, do not actually um, describe. So the limitations to this, obviously, adjacent areas can sometimes be quite different in nature, and I'll show just uh, some, uh, another slide later. Rivers and railways, you know, there's certain, certain things that separate certain areas that they adjacent, but the risk's quite different. And you need to be able to group claims and exposure data into adjacent areas to be able to calculate statistics. So that's the kind of, I think, the main limitation for South Africa. Clive gave, Clive Hoggard gave quite a good uh, presentation on geocoding and um, why it's such an issue in South Africa. So in the UK, you're thinking of about two million postcodes. The postal code is literally a couple of houses, small part of the street. So actually calculating an average statistic uh, with adjacency, it kind of makes sense. In South Africa, it's not the case. The, the actual postal codes... Um, the history of the postal codes doesn't necessarily try and, um, yeah, well, just, just the number of them and how they located. I've just kind of plotted a couple of postal codes and how they're surrounded by other postal codes. Um, you know, it's, it's clear that it's not, it's not always that meaningful. Another um, issue is that the area, so when we think of areas, it's, we've obviously got large cresta zones and then there's postal codes. But then statistics for certain, say like stats SA, there's lots of statistics on certain areas. So, you know, household income, education, infrastructure. But the statistics for South Africa is kind of almost what they call a, 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 a suburb. But, you know, within Johannesburg, they, you can drill down and you can actually see quite a lot of data. But it doesn't correspond to postco postal codes. Um, other crime stats, so crime statistics, um, if you go on crime stats essay, it's really, you know, get these, all these amazing maps and you can drill down, all that, but that's again by, by police precinct. So it's again another zone, another, another grouping. So no single kind of regional mapping for your pricing will be, will be useful. So it might be useful, but it, uh, yeah, it can't be standardized. So I what we, I think what, what we've seen certain companies do or starting to do is actually once your risks are geocoded, then you're not that, it, it, the reliance on kind of suburbs and the information given um, reduces. It's, it's still interesting that not, you know, the, the, if, even if you talk to some of the larger insurers, the, the actual geocoding, people are starting to look at it, but the percentage of, of, of books aren't, uh, it's still not, it's still quite a small portion of, of data that is being geocoded, um, and, but it is increasing. And there's companies in the market that's, you know, that's developed and that's sprung up that actually does these things very well. But um, if, once, if once your um, data is geocoded, then you can other, other, other um, rather than looking at regional spatial smoothing, is actually look at certain risk layers for your pricing. So. To, 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 so for example, model the correlation between the certain crime statistics with uh, burglary frequencies and use that as a factor in your model. Or 
you know, there's, there's lots of data on lightning strikes, actually where it strikes. So having a model with um, the you know, number of strikes per area, adding topography into your model, you know, where that location, risk location is, um, is located, well, where that risk is located. So yeah, that data is actually available. And with, with a geocoded data point, you can, you can have a different layer. You don't necessarily need to have mapped lightning strikes by postcode. Yes, this thing is. Same thing with um, with subsidence. So this is a um, from Grip is a is a company that does this geocoding um, uh, for the market. And they've got you know they can plot the national the national rivers. They know where the dolomites are. Things that they talk about is actually also including municipal data. Know the the infrastructure, the age of piping of certain municipalities. So with subsidence, it's not necessarily the fact that there's Dolomites, but if there's a leak, a pipe leak in an area like that, it becomes a, it exacerbates the, the risk factor. Great, so yeah, so that was kind of an overview. There's some of the other layers um, um, the other guys are going to talk about as we talk about the model and the capital validation. Hi everyone, um, I'm going to talk you through the calibration of the earthquake factors used in the SAM standard formula calculation. Before I get into the detail, I thought it would be best to go through where the earthquake risk sits in the SAM standard formula. So there's a non-life underwriting risk component that is made up of premium and reserve risk, lapse risk and catastrophe risk. And um, part of this is also a counterparty default um, component that sits inside each one of those risks. We also allow for um, counterparty defaults specifically relating to stop loss and other reinsurance outside of those three components. Today we are specifically interested in the catastrophe risk or more specifically the natural catastrophe risk. So just looking at the natural catastrophe risk, it's um, there's, it's, the large, it's taken as the larger of three components, either the earthquake, the one in 200 year earthquake, the one in 200 year hail, or the four horizontal events. The four horizontal events are made up of three, of four smaller components, smaller risk events that are one in 10 year or one in 20 year events. So we're specifically looking at the earthquake um, element. Natural catastrophe, catastrophe risk is generally quite well reinsured. Most companies will have some form of proportional reinsurance and also a catastrophe excess of loss reinsurance um, for these events. Prior to um, 2016 Q1 CPR calculations, we were required to choose our event based on the maximum net exposure. But since the Q1 calibration, the FSB have changed this to being the maximum net exposure, including the counterparty default risk charge. So the larger one in 200 year events generally have a larger counterparty default risk charge because more risk will be recovered from the reinsurance structures. So we were interested in, in looking at um, where the company's um, event has changed. So in Q quiz three, 70% um, of companies were using their horizontal events as their maximum charge. And now with this change to the counterparty default risk, 
we thought that possibly companies are now using the earthquake and hail events more. So we wanted you to, um, to vote on our poll. Um, I don't know if you can show the NatCat poll. Okay, so I think it's clear that maybe some people don't work in, um, in SAM as much as the rest of us do. <laughs> but um, it's also clear that companies are definitely not using the horizontal event as much as they were. So the, the earthquake is looking like the most popular. And I think the main reason for this is because of the high, um, the, the large amount of risk that is reinsured and, and now this counterparty default risk charge um, is, is, is pushing it to, to become the maximum. Okay, we can go back to the slides. Okay, so um, it's quite clear then that the earthquake um, calibrated factors that are used in the calculation will then have a, a large impact on many companies' uh, capital charge. So I'm going to just take you through. Oh, sorry, that's not lining up. I'm going to take you through um, what the the five factors are that were calibrated by the FSB. So um, the FSB provide factors for um, the earthquake risk factors. There are three earthquake risk factors. One's an overall market factor, one's, one is factors per line of business, and the others are factors per line of business and Crester zone. The FSB also calculated correlation matrices. These are across lines of business, as well as for each line of business across Crester zones. So if we just go back in time, in 2011, a compulsory data request was sent out to the industry. The industry was required to provide some insureds by postal code, grouped by 19 Crestor zones. The idea was that at some stage, the calibration would be recalibrated by postal code, but at this stage, this hasn't been done. So the data was also split by line of business, which is residential and commercial property, contents, engineering, and motor. The exposure data was modeled by the catastrophe modelers who modeled 50,000 event years. This was then, the, the working group then used formulas from Solvency 2 Quiz 5 to calculate the, the factors. If we just start off by looking at the overall market factor, this was, the calibrated losses from the CAT reinsurers um, were used to get the one in 200 year loss. This was then divided by the total exposure across the industry to get the factor that's used in all our calculations, which is 0.34%. The limitations with this calculation is that this data is now five years old, and the data from the larger players has a significant impact when modeling the lost data. So this is assuming that the market data is a good proxy for your individual business which may not be the case. Then if we look at the earthquake factors by line of business and the earthquake factors by line of business and zone, um, so what I mean by line of business and zone is um, for every line of business, there's a factor calibrated for every one of the 19 Crestor zones. 
So if we use the residential uh, line of business as an example and go through how the, the factor per zone was calculated, we take a one and 200 year loss for the residential line of business and divide it by the exposure for that line. We then proportion this across the zones by taking the average loss for an individual loan, zone and dividing it by the average loss across all zones. The extra limitation with this is that you are then assuming that the market by zone is also a good proxy for your business, which may not be the case. Lastly, we look at the correlation matrices. Um, there's firstly the correlation matrices calculated by line of business, and then for each line of business, the correlation matrices calculated for the cresta zones. So at this stage, we're actually unsure of how the correlation matrices were calculated, as the, document, the documentation is very unclear. Um, but we are, sure, we are sure that the FSB tested multiple different methods of calculating the correlation. And in choosing those methods, they tested whether the formula on the screen holds true. So if you look at the formula with the Q and the square root, that's the loss formula that gives the earthquake loss in the SAM calibration. This loss should equal the market factor times by exposure. So when the working group tested this, they ran multiple, um, they calculated different correlation matrices, plugged it into this formula, and found which one was closest to, to hold true. Um, and all of them require some kind of adjustment factor. So they chose the method with the, the smallest adjustment factor. And then they have to go back and adjust the markets, the, the factors by line of business and zone so that the formula holds true. Motor was not actually calibrated in the same way as the other classes of business. So motor and solvency two is not actually included in the, in the earthquake calculation. So uh, when the working group worked on this, they calibrated all the factors for the non-motor lines of business and then decided afterwards that they would like to include motor as part of the earthquake calculation. So experts in the industry decided that uh, a fair assumption would be that a one billion loss would come out to be close to a one in 200 year motor earthquake event. So um, because they had already calibrated all the factors, they used the residential line of business um, as a proxy for the motor line of business and rescaled these. But we are unclear, what's well, unclear on how exactly this rescaling was done. So I think it's important to consider the impact that the earthquake calibrated factors have on companies' capital. And, and it's especially important to consider the limitations on your business. We decided we'd also like to investigate what a one in 200 year loss would look like to the South African insurance and reinsurance industry. This time we decided to look at the one in 200 year hail event. So if you just look at the, the graph on the screen, you can see there, um, we, well, we used industry exposure data to calibrate a one in 200 year hail loss that came out at 24 billion. Once we um, applied the reinsurance structures, um, the industry net loss only comes out at 450 million. This is so tiny that it makes you question whether this calculation is so important after all. But if you look at the counterparty default risk charge, it's, it comes out at 550 million, which is actually greater than the, than the net exposure. This counterparty default risk charge is fueled by the gross loss. So if the gross loss is not calculated correctly, this counterparty default risk charge will also be incorrect. 
Even though the counterparty default risk charge appears small compared to the, the gross loss, it has a significant impact on many companies' capital. So if we just look, the total gross cost to the insurance industry of a 1 in 200 year hail event comes out at about 1.7 billion. If we then just look at this from a reinsurance perspective, um, we assumed that all the business was ceded to five of the larger reinsurers in the industry. We assumed um, a, a, an amount of retrocession that ended up um, leaving about $2 billion retained in the, in the reinsurance industry. We also assumed that this, that this retrocession was seeded mostly offshore, where um, we expect most of the reinsurers offshore to have a rating of about AA minus. So you'll see that the, the counterparty default risk charges it looks much smaller in proportion, but it's just because the ratings that we assumed were a little bit better. So even though that looks fairly small, a 500 million rand counterparty default risk charge split between five reinsurers is still significant. And the total charge based on our assumptions comes to about 2.8 billion for the reinsurance market. So if we just compare this, we assume that there was a 24 billion well, we calculated a gross loss of 24 billion. The insurance market took about 1.7 billion. The reinsurance market, about 2.8 billion. And we assumed the rest went offshore. Based on Solvency II calculations, an offshore reinsurance company would have to hold about 3 billion capital for that exposure. Here it's undiversified, but in reality it would be a bit smaller. Um, but what is interesting here is that... Um, the insurance market doesn't hold a large proportion of the risk because they, they reinsure a large amount of it to the reinsurers who then retrocede an even larger portion onwards. So in, in just wrapping up, I think it's important and clear to see that, this, that the way that the 1 in 200 year CAT events are calculated is significant to the capital held by companies in South Africa. Um, but we do feel that this calculation hasn't been looked at for a long time, and possibly um, recalibrating this would, would uh, provide much more accurate results going forward. Um, we do believe that this is going to be re-looked at in phase two, or we hope it will be, um, and we, we, we think it's really important that the industry participate in providing data and using the expertise that they have um, developed over the years. We also hope that it will be much better documented so that companies can better understand the limitations of these calculations going forward. Thanks, Bridget. So on one hand, we have uh, the SAM standard formula prescribing exactly how to calculate your net cat risk. And on the other hand, we have the also, which requires you to validate the relevance of the SAM standard formula to your business. So NatCAD is de uh, definitely one of the most difficult risks to validate because of the lack of events. We, don't have, we haven't had many earthquake losses in our recent history. Um, so we need to start looking at other ways of being able to validate, validate these losses. So uh, just listening to Bridget speak, I realize that we've, we've come up with different values for the one in 200 year hail event. <laughs> so um, <laughs> um, so we've, 
looking at this, uh, the industry loss for uh, one in 200, I've estimated about 15 billion for hail. So uh, the one in 10 and one in 20 are the same standard formula for any natural catastrophe risk. So it would be your horizontal events. So they're looking at about 2 billion and 4 billion respectively. So if we look at our recent largest hailstorm, which happened on 28 November 2013, that was an estimated industry loss of about 2 million. So that's comparable to a 1 in 10 year NatCat event. Then just looking at the SAM calibration compared to the Solvency 2 calibration for hail, uh, South Africa is in orange and Europe is in blue. So you can see that the South African risk factors are quite conservative compared to the Solvency 2 risk factors, with only Munich having a higher risk factor for hail than, than Johannesburg. Then just to show that uh, Gauteng is not the only place in the world that suffers from extreme hail events, uh, Germany has had excessive hail events in the last couple of years, the most notable being in 1984 in Munich. They had a hailstorm uh, resulting in hailstones of about 10 centimeters in diameter, weighing about 300 grams each, uh, damaging about 70,000 houses, 200,000 cars, and injuring about 400 people. They estimated that in today's terms, that would result in a market loss of about 3 billion euros, which works out to about 45 billion rand, which is quite significant compared to our 2 billion rand hail loss two, three years ago. And then last year, uh, Germany had another loss uh, from hail, also close to three, 3 billion euros. Then looking, looking at a hail track, you'll notice that the, the track of the hail doesn't exactly follow a cresta zone as it's parameterized in the standard formula. So it tends to follow more direction of the, of, of the wind. So they're usually quite long and usually like 30 kilometers wide and you can go up to about 250, 300 kilometers long. So I think what's quite important is to look at potential hail tracks and plot your exposure within those hail tracks instead of just looking at your exposure within a crest level, within a crest zone. So for example, two, two companies within the same, with the same similar exposure in a crest zone may have completely different hail risks depending on whether your risk is scattered throughout the crest zone or whether it's clustered within um, a common hail path. So another way to, to um, look at your hail, potential hail risk is to do some scenario testing. So you can look at specific scenarios at specific locations within a specific time of day. So for example, as I've mentioned, the November 2013 hail loss was about 2 billion. And then if you had to, for instance, look at Centurion Car Park at the car train station, it's always overloaded with cars. And if you had to consider during peak time, say, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, where everybody's car is parked at the car train station, and a massive hailstorm had to hit, we'd be looking at about 4,500 cars that would be affected. And depending on your average sum insured and your average expected loss, we're looking at about 135 million rand claim. And then looking at a 
in one traffic jam at five o'clock from Pretoria to jo from Joburg to Pretoria at five o'clock in the afternoon, uh, a potential hail event could result in a 640 million rand loss. So obviously these are in industry losses, but you could have a look at your exposure to those areas, how many cars you expect to see at Centurion High Train Station or on, on the N1 at 5 p.m. in the afternoon um, to determine what you expect your, your losses to be from those sort of scenarios. And then um, recent times have seen better data collection, for example, asking your clients uh, where their daytime address is um, for their cars, and then also installing telematics in your car, you have a better idea of where cars are based during the day, so you, it should give you a better estimation of, of these sort of scenario losses. So if we look now at the earthquake loss, the one in 200 I've estimated about 40 million um, industry loss, and then once again the one in 10 and one in 20 are your horizontal losses which refer to any, any natural catastrophe event, so they're about two and four billion. So if we look at the actual events that South Africa has experienced in the last two, 200 odd years, we've got about four earthquake losses that have resulted in earthquake events that have resulted in industry losses of less than 500 million in today's terms. So that, that includes the Orkney loss two years ago, the Mozambique loss in 2006, which affected Durban, Valcom in 1976 and Solution in 1932. So those are all really small losses that don't, don't feature in, in the one in 10. And then we've had two large loss, large earthquake losses in, in the last 200 years. So we've had the Tolbach Tal event in 1969 and the Milneton event in 1809, which we both, which we expect to, in today's terms, be, um, have resulted in a loss of about two billion each. So that, that would be equivalent to a one in 20 year event. So in the last 200 years, we haven't quite seen anything to the extent of a 40 billion rand earthquake loss in, in the industry. So following on from that, we can see that the, the, the SAM cal uh, calibration is quite conservative for for our earthquake estimation as well. Um, so comparing that to Europe, um, just for example, the, the capital charge for Joburg is higher than the charge for Italy, which we've seen recently is probably not that realistic. So per one million rand exposure, the capital charge for Joburg would be about 10,000 rand um, compared to 8,000 rand for Italy. So earthquake is obviously more difficult to validate due to the lack of events. Um, so what we could do is we could have a look at actual events that have happened. So for example, the, the Orkney last two years ago, we could look at the, the reach, um, how deep it went, how far, how many kilometers it spread for, and we could take that scenario and place it in an area with more exposure. So we've taken an actual event, an actual reach, actual distance, and apply that to, to an area where you have more exposure to see what your potential losses could be if that sort of earthquake had to happen somebody, somewhere else. And this is just a, a cool website where you can actually go and see that in the last, within the last two years we've had quite a few earthquakes, mostly in the, in the Clarkstorp mining area, but majority of which are 
far too small that have not even been felt, let alone caused any losses. And that's all we have for you today, if you have any questions. We have a few minutes for questions, if there are um, any questions from the audience. Okay, we have one up here. Hi. Um, so I'm not too familiar with Solvency 2, but I know that there's, there's talk about an allowance for storm and flood. Uh, I mean, my, my experience at, at Standard Bank is that Storm and flood are probably the biggest risk that we actually are currently facing, but there's no allowance for it in terms of the capital that we held. Uh, when we do review this in a phase two, is that something we're going to look at, or is there still talk about it, or what's the attitude towards including more risks? I think the, the, the solvency two, the, the storm is mainly around windstorms, so large windstorms obviously in peak, peak type areas. I'm not sure that we've got the same type of storm events that Europe, Europe would have. I mean, just in terms of if we worked, so when I've worked in the pricing market um, abroad, they, it's obviously certain territories where they actually got, have catastrophe models, so what they call the peak territories, which will be like German windstorm and, or winter storms and, and UK type floods. But I mean, like in, in terms of like a UK flood, literally like half the country, you know, or, or a big chunk of the country is underwater. So I think we've, um, we do have floods, but they, I would say it's, they would be more isolated. Um, obviously, I'll have the big orange river flood, but, it, you know, that would be more in areas that's not really that built up. So, so ideally, you'd, you'd probably want, want to have an allowance for that stand deviation within your premium reserve risk calibration. Um, I'm not sure there will be, I haven't heard of any talks about the, the perils being extended for, for SAM. If anything, is, you know, it's questionable where the motor, you know, the motor charge in earthquake you know, should really be a peak, a peak peril and whether that hasn't been over, overstated. So, no, long, long way to, uh, to, to answer your question. I, yeah, it's probably not a peak peril for South Africa, but I agree with you, it's maybe um, yeah, it's just making sure that you consider that new economic capital. That's probably quite important. Cool. Okay, thanks, thanks, guys. Um, Bridget mentioned on her talk around certain recalibrations happening under phase two. Is the same thing um, envisaged, Collar, for the earthquake? Because that obviously seems like one that's particularly um, penal the way it currently sits. Is that also um, the plan? So, uh, yes, I hope so. Um, particularly because uh, we weren't involved in the original calibration we'd like to be. So we have brought it up with the FSB, both for earthquake and for hail, and especially with the property risk factor in hail, because previously in quiz three, there was no risk charge for property under hail, and now there, there is a 30% of the motor 
applied across the board for property. So it's, it's definitely something that we will look at for phase two. Are there any other questions? Okay, thank you to the three of you for the presentation. Um, and the next presentation is a plenary in the in the main um, the main hall. Thank you very much. <laughs>